I'm on the ride of a lifetime I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore And I won't be coming back here Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Our prayer tonight will be given by myself. Lord, we love you. We seek you. We need you. We worship you, and uh, we want to worship you in spirit and the truth. That's, that's who you seek, are those who worship you in spirit and truth. Uh, forgive us our, uh, our failures and, and just help us to know you better by your spirit and confirm your word to our hearts. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, when we, uh, I think in the course of the show, I think we have missed saying the prayer maybe once. And, but I do remember this, that the night we missed it, it was about uh, three years into the show, I went ballistic on the people. And I mean, I was losing my temper right and left. I was screaming red in the face. And afterward, uh, Kevin Kennington, he used to be with us. He said, you know, you didn't pray at the beginning. And, and I thought it was so, I'm, I'm always really careful to try to bring the Lord into uh, whatever we do. If you attend our meat gathering on Sunday, this will be a bit of a redundancy to you. But I think it's worth repeating. There is, just think about this for a minute. There's a great difference between how a person is saved and what it means to be a Christian okay uh, they're related of course but if someone asks a Christian what does it mean to be a Christian and they say I'm a Christian because I've been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ I don't think that's really the best response we often link that to being a Christian but that's not what makes a Christian now, I'll explain. It's part and parcel, but it's not complete. Um, in other words, our salvation story, which is so important, or how we were saved, which is certainly by grace, through faith, is an incomplete and inferior way to describe our Christian walk or our Christianity. Uh, I would liken our status as a person who's not saved yet to let's just liken it to people who are walking around a giant deep swimming pool we have never been in that swimming pool that swimming deep swimming pool is God's that's God's family of born, reborn Christians so before that you ever go in there you've walked around on the deck you've been invited by the Spirit to go in but uh, you've never taken that Kierkegaardian leap of faith into the pool You've been invited by the Spirit, received Christ, everything else. You've heard it, but you've avoided it and your whole life. When a person receives what God is offering them by faith uh, with the offer to enter into the pool, this is how we become Christians. Just kind of use this analogy to help you. To receive the invitation, believing, trusting in God's promises that when we fall into that pool, 
he will take care of us, that he will be true to his promises. Really, that's one of the best definitions of uh, living by faith is trusting in the promises of God. So God says, you don't even know how to swim as a Christian, but I want you to fall into this deep pool that I call Christianity. You don't even know how to swim, but I, and I will take care of you. So uh, this is not, a leap of faith is probably a, a misnomer because it's a poor choice of words because we really are falling in. We are letting go of, of the side and the concrete and the safety of the terra firma, and we are falling into his grace. So that's how we're all saved, by his grace, through faith in his work, his reassurances, his promises of what he'll do when we're uh, in his care. But once we have fallen in, the point is not to drown. And it's to learn to swim as a Christian. And we, of course we have the imagery of dying to self and all that, but it's an important and critical disti distinction. Salvation is entering into the pool, but being a Christian is being in the pool by faith and swimming. It's, it's actually learning to swim. Why do you want to learn to be a proficient swimmer in the Christian pool? Because you then want to help others when they fall in and you want to keep them from just drowning. Often people size up being saved to being a Christian. I'm a Christian because I was saved as if they were one and the same. And I just don't think that's so after coursing through the New Testament. In other words, God did not save us for salvation's sake. He didn't say, fall in the pool, that's all I want from you. Because if it was, it would be, you've received me, now die to everything and just forget anything about growth, etc. In other words, God did not save us for salvation's sake. He saved us so that we would learn to become sons and daughters. And that is by faith. And that we would bear fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Want to see something really interesting? Turn to 1 John with me, chapter 3. Listen to what John says in verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Have you ever wondered why John's words here, which, by the way, are delivered to uh, the cream of the crop Christians, okay? By the time he says this, he's talking to the very cream of the crop Christians around him, are in the singular. He says, and this, singular, is, that's singular, his commandment. It's singular. This is his commandment. It's all singular. That we should believe on the name of uh, his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Singular. So he gives us two commandments there, but he says that we should, this is his commandment, singular, we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment, but he puts it in the singular sense. Why? Because to be a Christian, what it means to be a swimming Christian, to live as a Christian, to actually walk as a Christian, is by faith and just have it faith alone, sola fide, is not enough. That is not what defines a Christian. Faith. That is an incomplete uh, description. Um, faith is never, ever alone in Christianity for people who are Christian, people who have been saved. Faith is never alone. Uh, where there is real faith, there is always real love, okay? And where there is real love, there is always real faith. Uh, in other words, faith and love are not separate commandments. That's why he uses that passage in the singular and says, and this is his commandment, that we should believe and love as he gave commandment. So in other words, they aren't separate commandments. They are completely united. We cannot truly love one another without faith in Christ first. That's the problem with the people in, 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 in San Francisco and Sugar House who are saying, oh, I'm just going to love. They aren't able to love the way Christ loved because he doesn't empower them by having them die to their flesh. So they can never love like he does. So love is never alone. It always comes with and in concert uh, with faith. Look at it this way. Falling in the pool, we all receive a coin. 
okay? You, you fall in the pool, you got a coin. It says, I'm a Christian. On the one side, it says faith, and on the other side, it says love. They are on the same coin of being a Christian, and you can never extricate them from one another. We don't tease them apart and say, okay, let's just be faithful. They will always come together. Same coin, one coin, where faith and love are always present. This is the commandment, to believe on his son and love as he gave commandment. It's the singular commandment of being a genuine, true Christian. Uh, and with that, why don't we go to the, hold it Delaney, Board of Direction. Fastest open ever. We had a discussion last week with a brother who's in the audience right now, and it got me thinking. We were talking about the LDS Church, and he was once LDS, and uh, it's Warren. He has his show, Breaking Bread. And uh, he was wondering out loud about, do the leaders of the LDS Church know the truth of Mormonism, or, or are they just in, deceived? And it's a topic that comes up a lot with people who have been LDS, myself included. And I think part of the wonderment comes from people who have been in the, in the Mormon church is that we're astonished that men could be so outwardly successful and family men, educated, financially well-off typically in the higher echelons of the Mormon church, who would go and knowingly and willingly, willingly perpetuate a fraud. And so there's like this disconnect. Do they really know? And, and or, you know, so I also think that uh, an explanation of the situation is so multifaceted that it becomes somewhat unbelievable for us common folk to believe that otherwise honest and apparently upright people could perpetuate a fraud and not only perpetuate a fraud, get up and say they are apostles of Jesus Christ and bear witness to the truth before millions of people with tears. Is it a fraud? Are they deluded? Are they liars? So for those of us who have abandoned the ship, we wonder, do they know what we know? And if not, why not? And if so, what on earth motivates them to play the role they play and to do what they do. So at the center of our befuddlement, we're just gonna make this, this X represents this. Apparently honest, successful family men who publicly endorse a lie. This is the center of our query, right? Now let's add some spokes that lead to this and we'll talk about them because um, I don't want to put it right there. Let's just talk about them. And the first spokes that leads to this befuddlement is we must remember that those in the highest leadership in almost every case, and, and today maybe every case, I haven't looked, were in the faith from birth. Okay? So there's a high probability that at least at some point in their life they were true believers if they aren't now. Secondly, being LDS from birth, they have to some degree or another devoted a lot of time to the church and especially as adults in full-time missions and or in church schools and in local church positions. Three, they have these types who go into leadership position have really kind of received much of their identity uh, as faithful believers and they have adopted a role that they get a lot of respect for probably very young they were stalwart in the way they lived they got a lot of respect for that and they just made that community the place where uh, they learned that towing the line would benefit them more personally than fighting against it so they never rock the boat very early on they probably learned to always steady the boat and for that they got more props than to be a rebel and then by the time they have reached levels of responsibility where the cracks in the church start showing up, you know, uh, they have a choice to make. Carry on and live with it or resist it and rebel. And with wives and children and possibly grandchildren, the price is far too high to resist. 
So they, at this point, begin to rationalize and they begin to put on blinders. You have to. And they begin to justify the cracks in order to stay where they're at. Then fifth, um, we, uh, one of the rationalizations I believe they employ really effectively in order to continue to go on is that they look around and they say, you know, we have all these problems, but this is the best church on the face of the earth. We have, our, our finances are in order, we aren't in debt, we do everything right, we are a powerful institution, we have people who have high moral standards, apparently, you know, and, uh, and so they, they, they say all this stuff, and they say, when we look out at Christianity writ large, there's nothing out there that can compare with the institution we've created. Catholicism, even though they're bigger, haven't done a great job. So we're at least manning the best religious institution out there. So we'll, we'll justify these cracks that we know of. Another justification is they delude themselves into thinking, possibly, these are all suppositions. They might say, you know, I have been put in a position where my testimony and me as a person is so strong, I can handle this stuff but I could never let it get out to the masses. Those poor dumb folk, they could never handle the truth. And it's really a form of egoism. I am strong enough to perpetuate the white lie. They're like a noble um, Prometheus who says, you know, I know the truth of this thing and I will just bear the burden of knowing the truth for the good of the souls who can't handle it. You know, and it, you kind of get that idea when you hear them speak. And then by the time they've gotten neck deep, I mean, in, in all of it, they're too neck deep but to do anything but tread water. And all of their assignments in life, all of their positions, they have been vetted. From a young kid, they've passed the test. These guys weren't the ones going in and confessing to fornication to the bishop when they were 17. These were the guys who every stake and ward have who are like upright dudes. They got their identity from that. And so by the time they get so neck deep, it's too late. And in the highest echelons, the chance of apostasy is just, it's got to be really, really rare because they've been so highly vetted over the course of their professional and personal careers and lives. Add in that they have the benefit of high calling financial rewards now. And that would be number eight. And, uh, you know, we just might call number eight something that looks like that. They write books. They walk in a room and people stand. And we've talked about that happening. They have the honor of men ad nauseum. I mean, they walk downtown and you can see people just be like, oh, you know, this is now getting into the lofty areas of ego. And, uh, and so with all that going on, they're called an apostle of the Lord. Uh, it's probably not enough uh, anything to overcome these factors for them to step out and say, okay, I'm going to expose. But let me add a few more things and we'll get to our topic at hand tonight. There's a chance that amidst all of this, we'll call this number nine, they believe. They may be true believers. We have to, we have to admit that's possible. And we might say, well, how? I mean, how are, uh, you know, they're not really perpetuating a lie or a door. They really believe. Well, how many intelligent men and women over the course of history have believed really ridiculous things? Many. So that's not unheard of for someone to believe. Then there's the chance they don't believe. In fact, number 10 is they may not even believe in God. They may be atheists. And we might say no way, but I'm telling you, if you read the emails we've gotten over the course of the years, there are people in church position who say, I go for my family, I'm in the bishopric, I am the bishop, I'm in a stake presidency, but I don't even believe in God. Because you can belong to the institution and it can fortify you so well socially and economically and, and, and in your relationships with others, God doesn't even really matter at a certain point. So it's possible that sitting up there, we have a bunch of people who don't even believe in God at this point. That's something we have to consider. And then a final consideration is that amidst all that we've discussed, there's the possibility that the men in these upper ranks are actually evil. I mean, they, I mean the, 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 the New Testament talks about apostles 
who go about feigning apostleship, but really they truly are dark and evil. That is a possibility too. That really at their core of hearts, they, 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 may, not, they may acknowledge God, but they have adopted a false system. The reason I think that we can even consider this is um, we can see people who have been evil in other areas that are uh, honest and successful, not honest, but they look, appear honest, successful family men who are in public office or politics or CEOs or CFOs of corporations. They can also fit that mold and be full of lies and just be downright evil. And that happens sometimes when people are revealed for what they do behind the scenes, right? And so if it's possible in those echelons, it's possible within a corporate church. I absolutely believe that it's entirely possible that this is, could be true. The reason is they promote a false gospel. And I don't mean to be hard, I do mean to be hard on them. It's a false gospel. It's a lie. And if you look at the money that they garner and use to perpetuate this thing and how they endorse people with material wealth, it is really even more troubling. And because that's anathema to the, to the gospel. It's anathema to what Jesus was about. The Son of Man couldn't even rest his head. So it's so in opposition to biblical faith, you do have to wonder, you know, what is really motivating them. And, uh, you know, here's the final problem. We'll wrap it up. Niccolo Machiavelli, he wrote a book called The Prince. I read that year, decades ago. And he said, things will not change because those who do not benefit from change possess the power. And those who benefit from change are powerless. Now think about that. Uh, in light of this, I do not believe that we will see much change from the top of that hierarchy because all this stuff is in place and for them, there's no need to rock the boat. They've been able to make a life and a career and everything else out of being a steadier. And those who do rock the boat, like myself, we are powerless to do anything to affect what's at the top. It's going to happen when the numerical weight at the bottom outweighs, uh, has more power numerically than the top. When that happens, it will flip over and that triangle of them being at the top, just those few, will flip over and the numerical weight of people who are just sick and disaffected with all of it will come crashing down and crush it. That's in my opinion. All that being said, this does not mean to suggest that Mormon people are evil if their leaders are evil. They are trapped in systems no different than someone who's trapped in a Seventh-day Adventist system if it's evil or a Catholic system or a Southern Baptist if it's evil. All churches, if campus is evil, there's people trapped in it. Every system can keep people trapped, but it doesn't mean the people in the institution are evil. We do not war against flesh and blood. We war against dar spiritual darkness in high places. And how do we do that? We do that by sharing the truth and by loving. So, you know, it's like Mark said, sorry to quote Marx because I don't like his, uh, his philosophy, but he said, you know, it's a great message for us to share with people who are in these institutions. Arise, you have nothing to lose but your chains. You have nothing to lose but the chains that hold you bound. And that ought to be sort of somewhat of the message we give and incorporate that into Christ because he does nothing but provide freedom and emancipation from uh, the tyranny that comes from religious institutions. All right. <clears throat> With that, let's continue on our pre-mortal existence discussion. This is part three. Part of the disagreement between evangelicals and the LDS is the LDS interpret a few biblical passages to say it endorses the truth of a pre-mortal existence. When the LDS missionaries sit down with somebody in their home and they start to teach about pre-mortal existence, they will often use these debatable passages to fortify their unique view, literally telling people that they are the spiritual offspring of Heavenly Father. They don't include Heavenly Mother in that discussion, but that's what it really is. 
and before coming to earth. If they're a really good, smart, sharp missionary, he or she would say, you know, Mrs. Jones, investigator, you and your husband, all your children were a family as spirits before you came to this earth. And isn't that wonderful to know that you were all together? In fact, let's open up the Bible and I'll show you some passages that will show you what I'm saying is true. Now, to an uneducated person who doesn't know the Bible, they'll say, okay, let's see what you've got. Typically, the missionary will appeal to three main passages. There's Jeremiah 1.5, we all know. Uh, before, God says, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you and I ordained you a prophet unto the nations. That's a big one. You know, missionaries all use that. The next one is in Job 38.4. God is talking to Job after Job's been through all his trials. And God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if you have understanding, who has laid the measures thereof, if you know, or who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, and who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And in this uh, passage, they would bring up, hey, when all the sons of God shouted for joy. And then they would also turn to John chapter 9, three passages, verses 1, 2, and 3. And it says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. That's the answer Jesus gave. Then the missionaries might say something like, Mrs. Jones, how could a man born blind have sinned? Because the, the disciples said, Jesus, did his parents sin or did he sin that he was born blind? And the missionaries say, how could he uh, be born blind uh, and have sinned before his birth? The fact that the disciples asked Jesus this question in the LDS mind says, this shows there was a pre-mortal existence and it was believed in the early church. People were coming up and saying, well, you know, he was born blind because of something he did in the pre-existence. That's the way they would interpret that. So this slanted use of scripture to fortify their position, super effective. Those three passages, and there's a few more, but aren't as effective. And it helps people to believe that the Mormon church is true. Uh, add in the romance of believing that you and your family existed before. It's a really logical kind of thought. If I'm going to continue to exist, I must have existed before. And it sinks so deep in the human psyche, pre-mortal existence because something that's very, very palatable to people who convert to the church. So let's take those passages really quickly and examine them one by one. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. What the LDS suggests is that since God says he knew Jeremiah and even ordained him a prophet unto the nations prior to him being formed in the belly, Jeremiah must have existed. To this, step back and ask yourself, does God know and has God known all things all the time? Just ask that question. Christians reply, of course he has. He's always known all things. And this is strongly intimated in the Bible. God knows everything. Scholars speak of this passage in Jeremiah as appealing to what is called ideal preexistence versus what would be called actual preexistence. Okay? Uh, in other words, ideal preexistence refers to God's foreknowledge. That's ideal preexistence. In, in an ideal mind of God, He knows it all. That's ideally. But actual preexistence is a very different thing. And so scripture speaks of God's foreknowledge. And when it does that, the LDS are able to take passages that speak of it and say, see, and that's the trick that's used. The interesting thing is that Lowell Binion, LDS scholar says, quote, that these passages, quote, may be interpreted as meaning God's foreknowledge rather than man's preexistence. Their own scholar admits that. And I think that's really good of him because he's right. The next set of passages is Job 38. God is questioning Job and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare who laid the measures thereof. Do you know 
Where are the foundations fastened? Who laid the cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That last line, when all the sons of God shouted, uh, shouted for joy, is the hook that the missionaries will use, okay? And, and if I was a missionary and sitting in with an investigator, I'd say, Mrs. Uh, Jones, are all of us sons, and, sons of God? Would you think that we're all sons of God, children of God? And Mrs. Jones would say, I think so. And then I'd say, and we as the Latter-day Saints, we agree. Now look again at Job's, God's words to Job here. He is speaking of the time during the creation of the heavens and the earth. And what does he say? He says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Did you just say that all of us are sons and daughters of God? I did. Well, this shows that we were all there and we were shouting for joy at the creation that God had made. And Miss Jones says, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Now I'm starting to understand where I came from, why I'm here and where I'm going. And it provides them with a very concrete example of how to believe versus the Christian view, which is simply, I'm really not sure. Because really, when you get down to a plan of salvation in Christianity, we have different, we have different views. People will say, well, we were, we're here to glory in God. We were created by him because he wanted fellowship. We're here to worship him or him to, and we have give different answers when it comes to the meaning of life. The LDS provide a pseudo answer that is much more palatable. And uh, so there it is. The LDS view of this passage came straight from Joseph Smith. Many people don't know that. He was reading this passage when he was translating the Bible and he actually asked, why would God ask where Job was if Job wasn't there? That was the way he interpreted this passage. God wouldn't say, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth if Job wasn't there? And it's kind of funny because the rhetorical speech of God here was completely missed by Smith. He, couldn't under, he did not see that God was speaking rhetorically to Job. And in fact, he was saying, when I put everything in the creation, Job, where were you? Smith couldn't understand that that's what he was saying. I mean, the whole tone of the talk God gives to Job is to show Job that in the scope of things, he's insignificant. And the human existence is best as a vapor on glass. Where were you, Job? Tell me if you have an answer, is really how he's speaking to him. Nevertheless, uh, we can't ignore the fact that it does say the sons of God did in fact shout for joy. What is that talking about? And almost every scholarly commentary and the way you look at it from the Greek and contextual analysis of the Old Testament, it has nothing to do with earthly creations of any kind, but has to do with the economy of God and heaven and the courts that he has there. Old Testament scholar Brendan Byrne says the term sons of God, quote, does not imply actual progeny of God, but reflects the common Semitic use of the word son, ben, in scripture, to denote membership of a class or group of beings. That's how they will use son in, in, as a Hebraism. Sons of God then refers to belonging to the heavenly or divine sphere which form God's heavenly court or council. Uh, ben Burns' assessment of that passage is shared by almost all the commentators I was able to look at. So before going to the last passage, the LDS used out of the Bible to support their teaching on premortal existence, let me note that while the Old Testament does not give any evidence of a premortal existence legitimately when we look at the scriptures, there are some apocryphal books that popped up during the Jewish exile when they were sent out into captivity. And in those writings, there is reference to premortal existence. Okay? The Slavonic Book of Enoch 23.5 says, quote, all souls are prepared before the foundation of the world, end quote. So that's from an apocryphal book, it's not included, but they mention that all souls were prepared before the foundation of the world. And then in the Syriac Apocalypse of Baruch 32 and 3, it, said, it talks about 
the storehouses in which the foreordained number of souls are kept. And the idea there was that there was storehouses where God kept the souls stacked like cordwood. And then when it came time to fortify the bodies that were coming forth, those souls would come and jump into them. That was from, again, an apocryphal book. Most Old Testament scholars believe that it was here that when they came out of exile, the Jews, they'd been in bondage, they ran into the Persians and they ran into the Greeks, okay? And Plato was a big proponent of premortal existence. He talked about the forms, Hellenistic thought, the Greeks. And the Jews were influenced at this time by this thought. And that is when we start to see these writings incorporated into those apocryphal books, okay? It's well known that the Pythagoreans and that the uh, uh, Platonists were advocates of a premortal existence in the fourth century BC. Remember this little quote, all right? So in the Kabbalah and afterward, we started to see more ideas about premortal existence. This is all pre-Christ. So now we come to the only really best supportive evidence, or if you want to call it evidence, of a premortal existence in the New Testament. Again, Jesus passed by. He saw a man that was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin? This man in the premortal existence, or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. There are a few responses we can give to the LDS assertion that this is talking about it. First, Scholar Raymond Brown, New Testament scholar, says this is a direct teaching of a at-the-time belief of the rabbis that a baby could sin in its mother's womb. He says that is what it is talking about. That may be true. I tend to agree with another view, and it, it was proposed by 19th century Christian scholar Thomas Thayer, who says that at that time there was a very popular belief that came from the Greeks into Judaism that spoke of the transmigration of souls. And essentially, that's a form of reincarnation. And, uh, and it, in, it includes retribution for evil you did in a previous life. Okay? And so when he was approached and he was asked the question, did this man sin? Uh, these scholars believe that Jesus was being hit by a fable that was introduced by the Greeks of the transmigration of souls, and they said, did he do it in a previous life, or uh, did his parents sin? Uh, Josephus teaches in uh, his books that the Pharisees believed in the transmigration of souls. That shows how pervasive the thought became by the time Jesus walked the earth. And interestingly enough, just to throw it out there, there's even some suggestion that when Jesus talks about John the Baptist being uh, the Elijah, and that there is a belief that he's addressing those people who thought he could come back. And he was referring to their belief that Elijah could come back as John the Baptist and that the transmigration of souls idea was incorporated into that comment that he made, which is really uh, interesting. So we have to look uh, relative to this question, how Jesus replied. Many times Jesus does not lay out much. And in this, he didn't refute the idea. He didn't spend time to deny it. The only explanation was is that he was born blind so that the works of God could be made manifest in him. And there was the bottom line truth. That's what it was. He didn't spend the time to refute because I guess his, his mission wasn't to go around refuting everything. His, his mission was to go around teaching truth. And that's what he seems to have done. So in my opinion, in one fell swoop, he wiped the slate clean. He said the man was born blind because the glory of God would be manifest in him, meaning I'm going to heal him right now. Here you go. So the only valid New Testament passages that speak to a pre-existence, and there are a few of them, are when they refer to Jesus alone, never to another human being. In fact, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are from beneath, I am from above. Okay? You're, a, you're somebody who was born of the dust. I come from above. And he made it clear. And then John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus, who was younger than him in chronological earth age, says he existed before I was born. 
That's another reference to a pre-existence, and it's only again to Christ. And then, of course, we know that Jesus uh, told the uh, Pharisees before Abraham was born, I am the self-existent one. Again, just a boom scripture to show I came from above. The rest of this is from uh, beneath. So to repeat, just listen to this and we'll go to the phones. We have Mark in Ireland coming back for uh, revenge. Uh, it was the idea of a premortal existence was around before Jesus' time. How did it uh, pop up? It wasn't in the Old Testament writings. It came up in the apocryphal writings. How did it get there? From the Greeks, from the Greek influence, okay? And Plato and all those guys, Aristotle, they were all before Jesus 400 years, all right? It was not around during Jesus' time. There was the idea possibly of a transmigration of souls, but Jesus didn't address it. And the only thing we have in, the, in Jesus' day or the apostolic years are them saying how he was from above and the rest of us were not. So the idea of a pre-existence only applied to Christ and never to another human being. After Jesus ascended and the last apostle died, it popped back up. Why did it pop back up? Because some of the early church fathers embraced Hellenistic thought. They embraced Greek thought again. And Justin Martyr, uh, Theodoretus, Origen, among others, collectively of the early church fathers, they started proposing the Hellenistic idea of a premortal existence, okay? In fact, Origen of Alexandria, he's a guy who contributed greatly to the idea of uh, the Hellenized idea of God being Trinitarian. It was Origen who helped put that together. And by the way, Origen also cut off his man parts because he believed that he should do it for the kingdom of God. So Origen believed that spirits preexisted and had agency. That word is actually used in the translations of Origen, that they had a preexistence and had agency. But unlike the LDS view, he believed that they were cast down to earth because they were bad in the pre-existence. And it was a punishment to come and get a body. So when LDS will use early church fathers to justify the existence of a pre-existent notion, just realize that they did not believe in it the way that the LDS would teach it. All right. So upon reading Justin Martyr and Origen and uh, these others, uh, they say, this is evident that pre-existent teaching was part of the truth and was lost during the apostasy and needed to be restored back to the earth. But in actuality, what we have is it existed during uh, uh, the apocryphal times, during Christ and the apostolic ministry church didn't. And then it popped back up during the early church fathers who we give so much credence to, but they were full of heresy when you compare them to what the Bible says. Sorry. So in the latter part of the fourth century, the teaching started to fade. By the sixth century, the Synod of Constantinople, here's men again, formally condemned it. So I would suggest before we go to the phones, we can't look at the uh, apocryphal writings, Plato and Pythagor uh, Pythagorean thought. Uh, we can't look to the early church fathers and the things they taught on such matter. We can't even look at the councils of Constantinople and say they disavowed the teaching and use that as evidence that it's not right. We can't, those extra things can't be used. What we have to do is look at what the Bible says and read what it says. In the context, the Greek, the terms, the words to decide if premortal existence holds water or not. Not all these ancillary supports we use to try to justify our uh, pet positions. We'll wrap this up next week. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. And while uh, the operators are clearing your call, take a look at this. Woo, just enough time for Mark.
We got two Marks on the phone. One's in Ireland, one's in Canada. Ireland, Canada. <laughs> I'm going to get the one in Ireland really angry at me. Before we go to either of them, I want to read quickly an email. Uh, taking this off my phone because I forgot. It's from a guy whose actually name is George Lucas. He said, you may not uh, meet many couples like us, but we do exist. I've been listening to your show on YouTube for the past couple of years. Just this month, my wife and I celebrate our 27th anniversary and look forward to many more. I wanted to share this with you and your listeners so that they might understand that it is people that live together and not labels and institutions. I was raised a Christian Lutheran in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod since my birth, and my wife was raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints since her birth. While we both recognize that there are serious theological differences, we have focused on our relationship and our family in an atmosphere of love. Please don't misunderstand me. I've been harsh with my wife in the past and have made it very difficult on her, and the burden of that guilt falls squarely on my shoulders. It wasn't until I went back to regular attendance at church that my outlook began to change. For 20 years, I was in the Army and didn't attend church very much, and then I was retired and discovered that something was missing. I didn't have a relationship with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once this relationship returned, I simply no longer wanted to attack what she believed. That I learned to do was to defend the Christian message with love and, more importantly, with truth and honesty. Sometimes that truth and honesty can be hard for an individual to bear, but I know it is hard for her, and I am sincerely empathetic to her and uh, and if I really love her I have to be honest with what the Christian message is it's not for me to say whether she's a Christian or not and as a matter of fact I believe that there are many LDS people who will be saved but not of their own doing I have learned to separate the institutional LDS church from the LDS people that's what we were talking about earlier just because the institution is so vile in what it uh, represents when, it, when you get down to the end of it. Uh, many religious institutions are, and I'm always going to add that, because they can be. People who are at church seeking God are not necessarily replications of the vile institution that they attend. And I think we need to soften up on that, and that's what he seems to be saying. He says... Uh, Oh, he makes a good point. He says, what I have been taught from the LDS is that if someone is going to state a belief in something, then one should be able to at least defend it. This brings me to my final point, and it is a warning to Christians. Understand what you believe. Because the danger in someone stating a belief and not able to defend it is not that the person will eventually stop believing. It is that they will believe in anything. I think that's a really good point. And uh, really try to understand. What, I mean, God, Jesus said God seeks those who seek him in spirit and in truth. Not just in spirit, not just in truth. He was looking now, Jesus said, for those who seek him in spirit and in truth. And uh, I, that's just got to be our mantra for the, this ministry. Let's go to Mark in Ireland. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter. Well, McCraney, what have you got to say for yourself? Not much, Mark. Call me to repentance. Mm. Okay. No, I'm actually I'm not full of revenge. I'm not full of hatred or anything. I'm actually full of love tonight because show number 500, congratulations, hard as a matter, 500 shows, well done. Round of applause. Um, I had to pause show 500. Do you know why? I, I don't know why. Because who was sat up the front like a little cherub? Who what? Start. She was sat up the front. Oh, she Wendy. Was, she was, yeah. My wow. Wendy. Your Wendy. My Wendy. She was there well, at the start when you had everybody out. She I couldn't was, take my eyes off her. She? She's gorgeous. Gorgeous. She was. Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> she was hoping. She was there. She was on camera. You didn't tell me. She's a little minx. She's gorgeous. Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> a little minx. You know, we're, we're really starting to foster something that's not good here. She's married. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Hey, Mark, oh. I want to know, were you oh. on that bus on that video you sent me of the Irish guys singing? I have no idea what you're talking about at all. <laughs> no, 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 no clue. Uh, anyway, look, a question. What is happening in Mormonism? There is, there's, there's two of my friends in particular who still go to church, and they're not really that into it, but they go for their families, right? And 
the focus over the last couple of months seems to have been taken off Joseph Smith and put squarely on Jesus Christ. Yeah. And every time he's brought up, the, it's, the, 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 the kind of the discussion is steered back onto, oh yeah, but how great is Jesus and, and the, the sacrifice that he made for us. Sure, Joseph Smith may have found a book, but, you know, Jesus did die on the cross for all mankind and all. Are we seeing Mormonism 2.0? They're masters, of, they're masters of survival, my brother. Yeah, it's 2.0. The thing that's unique about them is they can go back to Joseph any time. That's why it would take somebody from the top to say, no more Joseph, no more. Once that happens, mm. we'd have the fall apart. But until, the, until that happens, we're on a slippery slope of moving messages. They have that liberty in that faith. Mm. I think well, it's good because Christ is preached. I think that's good, yeah. and, 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 and the people will maybe wake up when they hear Christ preach, even if it's preached out of larceny. But nevertheless, as an institution, True. I think they'll go back to anything that will uh, support their, their core beliefs. Yeah, true. Can I ask you just a question, just to go back to the Matt Slick thing, um, the interview that he did like a month ago now. Um, you asked him a question, and you said to him, question, do you think there's a literal fire in hell? And he said, yes. Now, you are very, you are very careful in your wording, a literal fire, okay? Um, do you remember asking him that? Because that was a really important question. And it wasn't just because of the question, it was because of what it opens up. Yeah. And what it means is, it, the, the person who wrote that, that scripture back then, I don't think they understood what we understand about fire today. Yeah. That fire needs three things. It needs a heat source, it needs something to burn, and it needs oxygen. So that must mean that there's oxygen in hell. <laughs> okay? You're right. So where's the oxygen coming from? Is it in tanks, or are there trees in hell? And if there's trees in hell, what do they do to get put there? <laughs> so, and, and to, no, actually to the person who just said it in chat, the sun, no, the sun is not a ball of fire. Sun is a ball of energy. Sun is a ball of energy thanks to hydrogen. No, it's hydrogen atoms that are fusing into helium, helium atoms. Not fire at all. Yeah. Um, but That's a great fire, point. It's a great point. Yeah. The, 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 fire, the, the fire that was used back then to me, I think the author had no other superlative word to try and describe what the feeling would be like on the soul. Yeah. Yeah. So he said, oh, it would be like being on fire forever. Yeah, without question. Without question. And you make a really good point. When Matt comes back, he's going to come back in a, in a month or so. Uh, we'll have oh, to cool. have you call. And uh, if you can get yeah. past your conversation with Wendy, then we can have you cool. guys talk. Okay. Before I go, may I wish you all a very happy 4th of July. Thank you. Do you have that there? No, it's called Independence Day in America. We, have it, we had Independence Day like a couple of months ago. Don't forget the Republic of Ireland is only 100 years old. So You, you didn't you slam know. me like I thought you would. I, I, I was well, it, it's the sarcasm. It gets jet lag on the way over, you see. Yes, um, look, just before I go, I think it's fitting, you know, given, given everything that's gone on in the heart of the matter, to consider the message of America's founding fathers, given this 4th of July. And the message is, of course, the only message that March 17th is St. Patrick's Day in Ireland. <laughs> You're My welcome. brother, thanks, Anytime. love you. Take care, bye-bye. Bye. Okay, let's go to Mark in Alberta, Canada. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, I was just going to say, Sean, it's uh, Canada Day on the 1st, so that's more important. Of course it is. <laughs> Triple time. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, um, I wanted to uh, thank, uh, thank you for the style of apologetics that you do, oh. because uh, I'm actually uh, going to a one-day session in, Lang in uh, Langley, B.C., uh, British Columbia, uh, that uh, Ravi Zacharias is a uh, keynote speaker. Wow. And, and so uh, uh, I'll be doing that July 13th and uh, 14th. Fantastic. So I made arrangements for people to cover my work, and I'm just going to go over there. And um, it's not a hot skip and a jump. I have to be in the airplane. <laughs> yeah. But um, anyhow, uh, you know, that's the direction that the Lord wants to take me in uh, in the ministry. And 
and this opportunity came up to actually see him, which is actually quite an honor to see him. And the tickets are quite cheap, twelve fifty Canadian. I don't know, it's probably fifty bucks American. <laughs> wow. But um, anyhow, uh, uh, I just want to thank you because you do a style of apologetics that really helped me understand in comparison to uh, Mormonism and uh, Christianity. Praise God. And, uh, and it's really helpful. I just wanted to thank you for that. And, and Canada is uh, far better than Ireland, I'll have to tell you. <laughs> I think we ought to all get in a ring and see who's toughest. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all right, brother. Thanks so much. God bless you. God bless. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, you know, uh, it was Augustine who hated his flesh. He had a lot of difficulty with lust and, and uh, sexual uh, sin. And when he was fully converted after his mother really wanted him to change, Augustine and the Spirit, he became a great prolific writer. And he's the one who really uh, solidified the idea of literal flames licking away at literal flesh in an eternal setting. And we've done a number of shows on hell and its eternality and the meaning of it. And we know that when Jesus talked about and he asked the question to the Pharisees, how will you escape the damnation of hell that's written in, in, um, in the King James, the damnation of hell, it actually says, that when you translate it from the Greek, it's how will you escape the judgment of Gehenna? And, uh, and that was a literal place that burned with fire where the trash heap was, where they used to sacrifice to idols. It was a place of horridness. And we know that when Jerusalem was destroyed, the bodies of hundreds of thousands of thousands of Jews were thrown over the wall and landed in Gehenna and were there. And that's what he was directly speaking of. How will you escape that exact judgment? And it had nothing to do with literal flames. I know we read about smoke sending up forever and ever. If you went back, go back to our shows if you want to discuss it and look about the eternality of hell and you'll see what all the words relating to it. It's all purposeful. It is all, it's punitive, but it's purposeful punitation. And it's God who is bringing people around uh, through a very unfortunate means, but one that he has instituted. Uh, so anyway, long story short, I just wanted to make clear that that, what he was bringing up, that Matt said it's literal flames. Um, you know, he makes a great point. Where's the oxygen? And then, all right. Listen, join us next week. We're going to continue on with uh, Premortal Existence Part 4. After we do that, we're going to touch on foreordination. We're going to touch on Mother in Heaven. Uh, because that is one that's come up uh, uh, in the LDS Christian debate. And uh, after that, we're going to get into creation and uh, then talk about the fall. And when we get to the fall, your world's going to get rocked, baby. So join us then. See you next week on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going This man's awake, a storm's arising the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light 